Today, God speaks to us from Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, my family and I, uh, actually just my oldest daughter and I mostly, but we have been enjoying the Disney Plus show, The Mandalorian. Uh, it is so good. <laughs> It's so good. Uh, some of you, you might not know this, uh, especially if you haven't been watching, but there's actually debate about whether or not it's actually good. Uh, I don't even know why there's debate. Um, for, for all the haters that are out there, is it perfect? No. Has every episode of season two basically been the same storyline over and over again? Maybe. But is it still so good? Yes. That's all I have to say today. Let's, let's pray. Uh, but if you haven't seen it, all right, so the show is part of the Star Wars franchise. Uh, it is essentially about a bounty hunter, the Mandalorian, who has taken it upon himself uh, to take responsibility for transporting a child, affectionately known uh, by those who watch the show as Baby Yoda. Uh, even if you don't watch the show at this point, you know about Baby Yoda, I'm sure. Uh, baby, baby Yoda, just for clarity, is not actually Baby Yoda. It's just a baby that looks like Yoda. Uh, ridiculously cute. You can Google it if you have no idea what I'm talking about. But, okay, let's get to the point about what we're talking about. Why I'm bringing this up. The whole show centers around the Mandalorian keeping, uh, keeping this baby Yoda safe while these bad guys try and kidnap him. Now, why are they trying to kidnap him? Well, we started to discover throughout the show that this super cute, seemingly innocent, vulnerable, ba- vulnerable baby is actually incredibly powerful. In fact, he possesses a kind of power that dwarfs that of anyone else like him. A baby who is matchlessly powerful. Some of you know where I might be going with this. Because today, we start the second week of our, seri- our Advent series, He Shall Be Called, by looking at another matchlessly powerful baby. Now, last week, uh, I said that Advent, the season of Advent, it's a season for longing. It's a chance for us to remember the longing that was experienced before those who came, or before those, uh, before those for whom uh, were waiting, sorry, let me rewind, those waiting for Jesus, before Jesus came is what I'm trying to say. Uh, And as they were waiting for this coming Messiah, they considered all the things that would be promised about him. They longed for those things to actually come. And so Advent connects us to those people. Fleming Rutledge, we said this last week, who's a theologian and an author, she said that Advent starts in the dark. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he puts it that Advent is for those with a troubled soul. Advent is about longing. And today we consider those ideas again by looking at Isaiah 9, which provides for us the the names given to Jesus, our Messiah and King. 
For the, in these names, what we see is a glimpse of the character of this king who is to come, who has come and is, who is to come, and the nature of the kingdom that he comes to institute. And today we're going to consider the second name in this list, that of Mighty God. And I want us to approach this name for Jesus uh, by considering the first part of verse 6, which says that, for unto us a child is born. And then it goes on to say, and he shall be called Mighty God. That a child, cute and seemingly innocent, is also matchlessly powerful. So let's consider Jesus, the true baby Yoda, by considering him as a child, as Mighty God, and then to consider why those two things together is actually really good news. All right, so first, a child. Uh, we have to remember, this is a little bit of a recap, Isaiah 9 is speaking of a king who will come to dethrone all other kings, to take authority from all other kingdoms and institute a perfect kingdom that is marked by justice and righteousness. And that this king, who was prophesied about hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus would come, was in fact the one who was spoken of all the way back in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, we're told that this, this king would come as a baby. And this, for those who were longing for the Messiah, was not actually what was expected. Right? This child coming as a Messiah, even though it had been prophesied about, was not what they were expecting. Meekness was not an anticipated characteristic for those waiting. See, the, the title Mighty God, for those that had been waiting for Jesus, the Messiah, to come, we were going to get to that name in a second, but that, that title, Mighty God, made sense to them because the Messiah was accept, expected to be a king who would come to crush the head of all unjust kingdoms, who would uh, crush the head of all those who stood against the people of God, which in context at the time, we're talking about the nation of Israel. And so from Israel's perspective, at various points in their history, the kingdom that needed to be toppled was at one point the Assyrian Empire, who's oppressing the people of God. Then it became the Babylonians, who were oppressing the, king, or the, the people of God. And then now, in the time of Jesus, it was the Romans who had come and were oppressing the people of God. And so they had this mindset that this mighty God, this person was going to come and wipe out all of these kingdoms. This mindset was so ingrained in them that when Jesus was about to ascend, all right, so he's about to leave and ascend back to heaven, uh, after having spent years with them, the disciples have a final question for him as he's about to go. If you remember in our Acts series, we looked at this, where as Jesus is about to ascend, his disciples say, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Which in their minds meant, so before you go, are you going to crush the Roman Empire, before you go and give us our power back. Right? That was the expectation that they had of the king to come and crush the evil and the wicked in the world. He was going to destroy those in rebellion against God and usher in a new kingdom, a kingdom of righteousness. Now, this perspective to have for them was actually a really problematic perspective to have. The reason being is because people back then and also people now, we all tend to assume that there are bad guys out there that need to be crushed by the justice and the righteousness of God. That the unjust, the rebellious, the wicked, the evildoers exist out there somewhere. But of course, 
I'm not one of those people. And so, God coming in justice and righteousness is good news for me, but it's really bad news for them. I mean, if we're, if we're honest, think about it. We all, whether you're religious or not, we all can think of people that we believe are worthy of judgment. Bad, bad people. Because we do believe there are good people and there are bad people. And it's actually pretty rare to find people that think of themselves as being the bad ones. Right? We generally believe that we are good. And if we, uh, if we call ourselves good and we believe ourselves to be good, then in some way, when we, especially when we stand before God, we can declare ourselves at least good enough. But for a Christian, we really ought to recognize that we ourselves are not actually in the good category. Part of what it means to be a Christian is that we recognize we're part of the bad category, I mean, from the biblical perspective, in Romans 3 and Psalms 4, Psalm 14 and Psalm 53, over and over again, we're told that no one is good, no one is righteous, that everyone has turned away. And then on top of that, in Psalm 36 and in Romans 3, we're told that there, there is no fear of God before our eyes. And so as a result, we have rejected the giver and the sustainer of life. We've rejected the king. We've rejected his kingdom. We don't want a king to come and establish a kingdom. Instead, we'd rather be our own masters and our own kings. And so as a result of this, this puts us in a difficult position before a God who comes to crush the kingdoms of this world. But this is why... Seeing the king coming as a child is so important because it says something about the king. It tells us that this king does not want us to be crushed by his justice and righteousness, by his power and his might. It tells us that this king wants us to be close to him and near him. He wants to be approachable. So he didn't come like he's described, for example, in Revelation 19. In Revelation 19, we see this same king coming with eyes blazing like fire. It says that he speaks words that strike down the nations. I mean, it's a terrifying sight. If you ever get a chance to read Revelation 19 to get a picture of this king, you should do it. I also have all the imagery of Revelation 19 on my, on my uh, tattooed on my arm because it's a good reminder that there is a king that is coming whose eyes are blazing like fire. But instead of coming like that king, he comes as a vulnerable, approachable child. But here's the flip side. Though he comes as a child so that he might be vulnerable and approachable, we cannot forget that the name he's given in Isaiah 9 is Mighty God. Let's consider what that means. Now, the word mighty is actually a word uh, in Hebrew that has battle connotations. Uh, it's referring to, a, to a, a warrior. So mighty God could actually be translated as warrior God. Now what does that mean? Well, it means a couple of things. The first thing that it means, and I don't want to rush past this, but I at least want to acknowledge it, that this passage is speaking of Jesus. So just to be clear, this passage is calling Jesus God. And I note that because, of course, there are many who do not believe that Jesus is God, believe instead that he is a good man or a wise prophet, but he's not actually God. However, the belief that Jesus is not God goes against everything that Scripture says about him, and it goes against everything that Jesus says about himself. 
I mean, Jesus said in John 5, he says in Luke 24, that all the scriptures were about him, including this passage. He says in Luke 4, that he, uh, Jesus forgives sins, which is something that only God can do. And then later in the chapter of uh, Luke 4, Jesus speaks of himself as the one uh, of whom scripture speaks. And the people that heard him say that get so furious that they try to kill him as a result. Not to mention, all throughout the book of John, Jesus is constantly calling himself, I am, which is what God calls himself when speaking to Israel and speaking to Moses in particular. And so Jesus is either God and worthy of worship, or he believed himself to be God and was therefore crazy, or he knew he was not God, claimed to be God, and was actually a liar. Those are the options that we have before us. He's God, he's crazy, or he's a liar. And so if he is who he says he is, if he is who scripture says he is, then that has significant implications for this title, Mighty God. Because second, we cannot miss that though Jesus comes as a vulnerable, vulnerable baby, approachable child, that he still is mighty. That though he is more than the warrior king that we see in Revelation 19, whose eyes are blazing like fire, he is nonetheless still that warrior king, who when he returns will come with eyes blazing like fire and will come to judge or to wage war on sin and injustice. And this is actually where I think a lot of us get, get it wrong with Jesus. Because I don't think most people, whether you're a Christian or not, have a hard time thinking about Jesus as a meek child. Most of the time, we think about Jesus as being gentle and kind and compassionate and welcoming, all of which is true. But the consequence of only seeing him in those ways leads, to us, leads us to believe things that are fundamentally problematic about him. I mean, for example, if we only see Jesus as meek, then likely we will believe that he expects nothing from me and that he would never judge me or ask me to change anything about myself. Or we assume that there's nothing to fear about him and there's, that's not true. You can't read through scripture, especially through the words of Jesus and the, the pictures of what it, it will, what it will be when he comes and experience him as being only meek and vulnerable. John 12 and many other places throughout the New Testament tell us that Jesus is a judge, that he is a righteous judge who will judge the unrighteous. And since we've already established that no one is righteous, we have a real problem because the warrior is not just coming for people out there. That warrior king is coming for people in here. And we cannot deny that part of Jesus, as many do, because to deny that Jesus is a judge would require us to also reject everything else that we believe to be true about him, that he is kind and loving and compassionate, because the same place that we hear about Jesus being kind, loving, and compassionate is the same place that we find these words like mighty God, warrior king, the one who comes to judge. And I said earlier that one of the reasons we have a problem is what Psalm 36, Romans 3 says, that, we, that there is no fear of God before their eyes. And when one dismisses Jesus as mighty God and only cares to see him as meek and approachable like a child, it leads to us having no fear 
no reverence for him. And back to Baby Yoda in the show, again, if you've seen it, no one takes him seriously until he reveals his matchless power. And then all of a sudden, they're all left stunned and in awe. And I wonder, how often do we see Jesus with his power and as a result are left in awe and wonder and even fear? And I wonder too, you know, as I think about this, how do we know? How can we consider how we exactly see Jesus? How do we know if we're dismissive of Jesus as mighty God? And there's probably a lot of ways to process that, but one of the surefire ways to consider whether or, or not we've dismissed him as mighty God is to consider the ways that we react when we're called to obey him in certain areas of our lives. Right? How do we think about Jesus and his word in particular? Right, so just for example, when Jesus says, no one comes to the Father but through me, in other words, the only way to God is through Jesus. When we hear Jesus say those words, those are his words, what is our reaction? When Jesus tells us to love our enemies, what is our reaction? When Jesus tells us that we ought to, with haste, flee from uh, lust and sexual immorality, what is our reaction? When Jesus calls us to be sacrificially loving and generous, what is our reaction? When Jesus calls something evil, do we call it good? I mean, this is the exact issue that's happening in Isaiah. A few chapters later, in, or before rather, in Isaiah 5, Isaiah puts it this way. He says, woe to them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. I mean, this is the exact issue that Isaiah is addressing, that they do not take seriously the commands of God. The things that God calls good, they are evil, they call good. A simple test of whether or not we see Jesus for who he is, is to test how we react to his commands. Because I know for a fact that many of us, including myself, do not see him rightly. Constantly, we are disobeying things that we know he calls us to be and calls us to do. And that, to me, means we don't take seriously the gravity of what it means that he is a mighty God, a warrior king, that he's our judge. So how do we then reconcile these things? You know, I, I've said that he's this vulnerable, compassionate, approachable child, and yet I'm also saying he's one that we ought to fear. How do you reconcile those two things? Well, I'll tell you how. Those things are reconciled only when we put them together, and we see him together. When we see those two things together, we then have good news. Let's consider why. The good news of Jesus, the gospel message, could simply be stated as this, is that Jesus takes what we deserve so that we can receive what he deserves. If you wanted a one quick sentence summary of the gospel, there it is. Jesus takes what we deserve so that we can receive what he deserves. And unless we have a God who is both meek like a child, but also mighty and matchless, we lose the power of the gospel. We need to have both. I said earlier that the term mighty, again, had these warrior connotations. And this is important because Jesus will come with power and might. Because there is an enemy that needs to be defeated. Ephesians 6 
tells us that we do not battle against flesh and blood, but against the powers of this world, of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And Romans 3 tells us that sin and its effects, that they lead to death. And so Jesus comes because sin and death need to be defeated. I mean, later on in Isaiah 25, we're told that he comes to swallow up death for all time. The mightiness of Jesus is that he comes to accomplish victory in order that his victory might then be ours. The destruction of sin and death, they were for us, and yet Jesus comes and he takes those upon himself. And then on top of all that, he resurrects, and that same resurrection is also ours. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul quotes this ancient prophecy from Hosea, and he says that death has been swallowed up in victory. He says, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? For on the cross, Jesus takes sin and its effects, including death, that they might be not put on us, but be put on himself. And so in this sense, he is mighty. He is a warrior God who comes to defeat the powers of darkness. But though he is mighty, he also came as an infant. He grew, and he lived a life of sinless perfection, obeying the Father in all things. He grew and experienced what is common to all humanity, uh, Hebrews 4 tells us. He lives an exemplary life where the weak and the vulnerable and the outcasts were given security and strength and friendship. He lived a life of justice and righteousness and compassion, He, in the end, is the only one who could perfectly fulfill the law of God and be accepted by God on those merits. And do you know why he lived that life? He lived it so that as we trust in him and as we believe in him, that our faith is then credited to us as righteous. I said, no one is righteous, and that is true. But when we trust in Jesus, his perfect righteousness becomes our righteousness, therefore making us righteous. Isaiah 61 speaks of a robe of righteousness that's placed on us. Colossians 3 says that we're hidden with Christ as we put on this new self. The perfection of Jesus becomes the righteousness that we ourselves could not attain or achieve. And Jesus coming as a child meant that he would accomplish this for us. Now, why do I draw all that out? I draw it out Because a mighty God who comes to crush all injustice and wickedness on its own would result in our demise. On the flip side, a mere child who grows as a moral and wise man leaves the power of sin and darkness still in place. But a child who comes in weakness in order that he uh, might accomplish what is necessary for us to be accepted and welcomed by the Father, while at the same time being a mighty God who crushes our enemy, is the kind of Savior we need. Now we've said that Advent starts in the dark for those with a troubled soul, and the reason why, the reason being is that the celebration of Christ's coming is dependent on our realization of, a savior, of us needing a Savior. Why celebrate Christmas? What difference does Christmas make unless we first realize that we needed the Savior to come? I mean, darkness is realizing one's status before God outside of Christ. Darkness is realizing that Jesus, as mighty God, is a crushing concept. 
And if we don't realize our need for a Savior, this season is meaningless. It's either meaningless or it should be terrifying that Jesus had to come. But if we, if we have trusted Christ, then we see the kind of Savior that we need, a Savior that needed to bring us out of darkness and into his marvelous life through his work as a child growing up with righteousness, perfection, on the cross, taking our sin, and his resurrection, giving us life, hope of life to come. And so in the end, I'll close with this. There's a simple question, because I think many of us are going to be in this, uh, have to process this for ourselves. Which of the two aspects of Jesus do you struggle with the most? Do you struggle seeing Jesus as a meek child who is approachable and desiring to be near you? Some of us do. I know that some, they live in constant fear of God. And if that's you, you need to see Jesus as an approachable, meek child. Or do you struggle seeing Jesus as mighty God, who's a warrior king? Too often you're thinking about Jesus as a meek, vulnerable child. You do not think of him in his might. And so there's no awe, there's no reverence, there's no desire for obedience. Don't miss either. And may this Advent be a time of reflection for all of us to consider more deeply Jesus in his his fullest, a child who is also mighty God. Let's pray. Father, God, we thank you that you are mighty and powerful, so much so that we, we should fear you. But God, out of your love, you don't desire for us to be alienated from you in that way, to be crushed by your power and might. You desire to be close and near. And so in your son, Jesus, he comes and he proves your character, a character that desires to draw us near. And so you come in innocence, in meekness, God, this is the kind of Savior that we need, and so would you help us to see Jesus for who he is in his fullest. May we see him as a warrior who's a warrior on our behalf. (laughs) Would that bring us great joy this holiday season? I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.